Hi, this is DebtWire Managing Editor Andrew Ragsley, and you're listening to Episode 7 of our DebtWired series. You're about to hear from Jeffrey Cohen, partner at Lowenstein Sandler in the Bankruptcy and Restructuring Department. Jeff's team, of course, does a lot of UCC work, and in this discussion with Deputy Editor Rashmi Basu, the two discussed some recent retail case studies Lowenstein was involved in, those being Models and Century 21. Jeff also hits on what to expect in the future of VC-backed tech restructurings and gives a general outlook for the 2021 distressed market. Thank you for tuning in today. Jeff Cohen took over the chair of Lowenstein Bankruptcies Group on January 1st. The law firm is coming off a very busy 2020, securing a number of high-profile mandates, such as the UCC for both Century 21 department stores and GNC Holdings. Jeff, thank you so much for being here with us. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. Looking to 2021, what are your strategic initiatives for the restructuring group at Lorenstein? So I'm pretty excited about what lays ahead of us for 2021. You know, being known for something, being known as an expert in something, as we are, uh, as committee counsel, primarily in retail cases, um, can sometimes be a, a double-edged sword. Um, people know you for one thing and they don't know you for others, but the reality is the Lowenstein Bankruptcy Group and Lowenstein as a firm have enormous and diverse capabilities. Um, and I'm looking forward to leveraging those capabilities in 2021, specifically, um, you know, Lowenstein has done its fair share of middle market debtor cases over the years. Um, given the surge of cases we expect to occur over the next 12 to 18 months, we expect to be a prominent player in those filings on the company side, um, as well as servicing our other practice groups, our private equity practice, our technology practice, our transactions advisory and M&A practice, are all, despite the uh, expectations that 2020 would be a down year, uh, they are all humming along at maximum capacity, and we look forward to uh, finding ways to service their client base as well. Yes. And then how would you sum up 2020? I mean, what did you see in terms of recoveries and how would that kind of service the backdrop for restructuring in 2021? So uh, 2020, uh, listen, I, I started practicing a little over 20 years ago. Um, first, I dealt with the burst of the tech bubble then the energy industry crisis with Enron and PG&E in Southern California Edison, and obviously some, re- some retail spikes post Lehman. 2020 was unlike any other. There was no game plan. There was no template. There was no um, sort of pre- pre-paved path to follow. So it was reaction on the fly. Um, you know, I grew up in, in New York, um, when Crazy Eddie was a very popular electronic store and the commercials were, you know, our prices are insane. 2020 was insane. Uh, there was no textbook for it. So, you know, really smart people had to put their heads together and figure things out in cases and issues of absolute first impression. And so in what sectors do you then see as the hotbed of restructuring activity for 2021? So I think we'll see some continued retail, um, but you know we can talk more about that as we go along in the conversation and whether or not that'll happen to the extent to which people think it might. But um, other obvious areas are um, travel and entertainment, 
um, hotels and lodging and restaurants. You know, obviously, um, some portions of these industries have been, you know, somewhat temporarily propped up by stimulus uh, funds. Uh, those funds have not been enough to obviously keep them normalized, but enough to keep them still open. Um, those funds at some point will run out. Um, and at that point, uh, those companies will be left with no other option um, but to seek a restructuring of some kind. Now, whether it happens in a formal proceeding or whether it happens by consent of their stakeholders, I mean, that's yet to be determined. But, but I, I do think uh, travel, hotel lodging, um, entertainment, and restaurants will be big in 2021. Okay. And then can you also touch upon distressed tech and what you see happening in that space and the relationship with venture capital and also kind of what your projections are for emerging companies and startups? Yeah, so it's an interesting question. It's one I've dealt with quite a bit over the last five plus years and one that frankly has always uh, perplexed me a little bit. Distressed tech, emerging companies, startup. Let's just lump them all together. While not all emerging companies and startups are tech related, a lot of them have the same issues. So uh, a lot of companies, emerging companies and startups, many of them disappear before they mature enough to have enough assets to be worth restructuring, right? So they have an idea, they get funding, it doesn't come to fruition, but they really haven't accumulated either enough assets or enough liabilities to warrant the restructuring. So those companies turn the lights off and they walk away. And the investors don't get a return, but no harm, no foul. Well, but there's another group of those companies, mostly, frankly, tech-oriented, that they, I like to say, they emerge enough, right? They're no longer an emerging company. They've emerged enough where they actually have assets that are of interest. They could be tangible, hard assets, or they could be intellectual property. But they have assets of interest. And they run out of funding. Either their initial funding sources don't want to belly up to the bar for a second round of funding, or they've just burned through their capital and the market's dried up for them. For whatever the reason, they've run out of runway. And in those cases, many of which are backed by venture capital, the venture capital community still is hesitant to avail itself of Chapter 11. Philosophically, many of those investors view Chapter 11 as a stain on their investment acumen, and they really would like to avoid the publicity of a chapter seven or 11 filing. So many of them avail themselves of a less public process, either an out-of-court workout, so no court proceeding involved, or um, an assignment for the benefit of creditors, which differs from state to state. It's essentially the state law equivalent of a chapter 11 filing, but the rules differ drastically from state to state, they tend to fly under the radar, don't get the publicity that a chapter filing gets, um, and you still get to maintain the control. Now, unfortunately, I believe that through most ABCs, now there are exceptions to everything, but through most ABCs, you really don't maximize the value of the assets. Um, there are several companies that I helped shepherd through an ABC or an out-of-court process that I would kick myself under the table as we were doing it, saying, I wish we were in an 11. I really think if this was subject to a public competitive auction process, that this would have achieved a much more substantial, substantial return for creditors. And unfortunately, it's just a philosophical barrier that we're still trying to break down in the venture capital community. But I think that'll continue. We're starting to see 
a few examples of companies that are VC backed that are filing. Um, and I hope that trend develops and continues. Yeah. And Lauren Stein is considered a heavy hitter in retail restructurings. Given your expertise in the space, what do you foresee for the retail industry? So post Lehman in 2009, the concept of amend and extend became popular, right? Rather than a lender take a write off in that calendar year and flush their investment through bankruptcy, they would amend the loan facility for a year, collect a fee and worry about it a year later, hoping things would be better. Here, as we enter 2021, it's really unclear, and I think it'll become clear very soon in the next few weeks, but it's unclear what the lenders will want to do with their collateral. As we sit here in the first week of 2021, retailers are getting in virtual boardrooms, assessing their holiday performance, recognizing their shortcomings, and deciding what to do. And part of that conversation is not only a board deciding what the right choice is, right, right path to choose for the company will be, it's also consulting with your lender to see what they're willing to support, right? Would they rather file now and liquidate? Would they rather provide additional liquidity to see what life looks like on the other side of herd immunity when consumers can come back to stores at some level of normalcy? A lot of that is going to lay in the hands or in the minds and the decision-making process of the lenders of what they want to do with their collateral. Do they think the best chance of them getting out in full is liquidating now, or do they think the best chance is providing their customer with some additional liquidity to try to either return to normalcy and a healthy company post-COVID, post-herd immunity, or even to just liquidate then? Remember, it's hard to run a store closing sale if the stores are actually closed and the consumer can't go in. So the lenders, I believe, are as we sit here talking today, are sitting in rooms talking about this very issue. And what about the credit bid? It was very on trend in 2020. Why was that? And will it continue? So I know it feels like the credit bid became more popular in 2020, but it's definitely something that's been there for quite some time. The issue became more prevalent in 2020, as I believe it started in 2019 or 2018, because opportunistic purchasers were looking for any advantage they could get as they entered into a competitive auction dynamic to increase the chances of them being successful. It wasn't just multiple parties showing up to an auction with briefcases of cash and seeing who brought more cash with them. It was who could maneuver ahead of time align themselves with perhaps a second lien lender who's likely a little bit out of the money, um, forming a joint venture with them so that as a bidder, you get to bid the entirety of that second lien debt. And it basically gives you a lot of dry powder at a discounted price. So I think you saw a lot more opportunistic joint ventures over the last two plus years. It became even more prevalent in 2020 as parties became desperate to salvage their investment in distressed companies without a prospect of when things would return to normal. So I think the speed at which companies that 
previously weren't distressed were becoming distressed and the need for parties to become creative to solve what's not one, two or three problems, but dozens of problems perhaps in one portfolio all contributed to parties having to find ways to be more creative and joining up as partners and really um, utilizing the credit bid to its greatest capabilities. And can you talk about Century 21? As the lawyer for the UCC, how were you able to get a 35% recovery for creditors when it looked as if trade would be wiped out at the onset of the case? So I'm always happy to talk about uh, case successes, especially ones that happened so recently. First off, uh, I hope that we still obtain even greater than a 35% recovery for unsecured creditors. Um, we still have some upside, the possibility for some upside built into the global deal we negotiated with the parties in the case. So fingers crossed that, that actually happens. But you know, Century 21 was a combination of a few factors. And I'd love to talk for the next few minutes about how amazingly incredible my Lowenstein bankruptcy team is. And we are. Um, and I'd like to say that we're the sole and exclusive reason why this case went from zero to 35 cents. But reality is we're not, right? Um, sometimes you're only as good as the facts presented. Uh, sometimes you're only as good as some lucky coincidences that occur in a case. Uh, sometimes you're only as good as, you know, the uniquely attractive nature of some of your assets. And I think Century 21 was a combination of all of those things. Um, first and foremost, as anyone that read the papers in connection with the filing of the case, Century 21 believed that it had insurance in place that would actually cover a global pandemic, right? Remember, Century 21's flagship store was basically across the street from the World Trade Center, right? You could not access the Century 21 flagship store for months while Ground Zero was being attended to. The family that owned Century 21 said, we never want to be in that position again. So they took out very bespoke insurance policies, manuscripted policies that were intended to protect them from the absolutely unforeseeable. So when COVID-19 hit, they believed, and we as committee council believed, this is what those policies were written for. Obviously the insurance companies disagreed. So unlike many other litigation proceeding throughout the country of retailers suing their insurance companies saying, I couldn't access my stores, honor the insurance policy. Century 21's policy is actually different than all of those policies. Century 21 actually has a greater chance of recovery than I believe any of those retailers pursuing litigation across the country. So that's one thing. We believe we have a very, very, very strong insurance asset and a market for it. Uh, secondly, the intellectual property of Century 21 means a lot to many different people. For Manhattanites, it's iconic. For, for fans of Sex in the City, it's iconic. And for you know the average consumer looking for a deal on luxury items, it's been the place they've been going to for decades. So it just means a lot to the consumer and had value. Um, lastly, there were some insider um, transfers and transactions executed over the last few years that might give rise to litigation and causes of action that we as the committee could bring on behalf of the debtors estates. Um, this is where I believe the Lowenstein SWAT team, our bankruptcy team combined with our litigation capabilities 
really came to the forefront very quickly and very efficiently. And because we did what we're supposed to do, we were able to leverage ourselves into very, very productive settlement negotiations with the family, the Gindi family that has owned the Century 21 uh, companies forever. Um, and frankly, you can't have successful settlement negotiations without a willing party on the other side of the table. And the Gindis, I believe, from the very beginning, wanted to treat their trade partners the right way. Um, I believe that they took it personally, that they left their trade vendors and their landlords with really substantial dollars owed to them. And to their credit, they stepped up to the plate, uh, engaged in meaningful discussions with us. And we reached a global settlement that dealt with the insurance issues, that dealt with potential litigation against them. And in addition to a global settlement of $59 million, separate in a separate transaction, the Gindis paid a little more than $9 million for the intellectual property. So $68 million from the Gindis for a variety of assets in the company took us from zero to 35 cents. And in selling the insurance portion in the global settlement to the Gindis, creditors also retained a percentage interest. If the insurance recoveries exceed $75 million, creditors still get a percentage of the upside. So uh, 35 cents is a floor. I'm looking for more and I'm hopeful for more and we'll see what happens, but it's really exciting. Yeah, that was an amazing recovery and more to come, it sounds like. So how do you restructure a retailer, a consumer-oriented company when we just don't know what the new normal is? So I was creditors committee counsel uh, and still am for Models, right? So Models was really the first retailer to be caught by COVID. It had filed in the District of New Jersey uh, a week to 10 days, 10 days before the world shut down in March. And it had filed for the sole and exclusive purpose of running store closing sales at all of its locations. And Models e-commerce was really never that robust to begin with, but it had been shut down already at the beginning of the case. So when COVID hit and all the stores closed, we were really stuck. How do you liquidate inventory if we as the company couldn't even access the inventory and then if we were able to access the inventory, we couldn't even interface with our consumer because we didn't have a functioning e-commerce site that could have been adapted to curbside delivery. So what do you do? You're literally stuck not knowing when the stores will reopen. Finally, when you think the stores are going to reopen, not knowing if your consumer is going to come back to the stores and re-engage. And then if you're lucky enough for both of those things to happen, you're sitting on winter merchandise in the beginning of the summer for a store chain that predominantly sells sporting goods in a summer where kids aren't allowed to play sports. I mean, I can't think of a greater, you know, in law school, they called it the parade of horribles. I can't think of a greater parade of horribles for one retailer to deal with. And what were we doing those months where the stores were shut down? Committee counsel, which is my firm with our advisors, our financial advisors was Alex Partners putting our heads together with debtors advisors, call shots, BRG, uh, with the lenders, right? Wells Fargo, their advisors, figuring out what do we do? How do we forecast for this? We have no idea what the world's gonna look like when we reopen. We have no idea what that one basketball is gonna sell for. And we, we've done, I've done hundreds of retail liquidations. 
I've done hundreds of retail going concern sales, but Models was a liquidation. Hundreds of retail liquidations. Combined with all those advisors, thousands of retail liquidations. None of us had done a single one with all these issues. And frankly, you do the best you can, right? We had a ton of calls. We had a ton of Zoom meetings, which was obviously brand new and involved a lot of dogs barking and people not being on mute. But we figured it out. We argued. We um, all had a singular goal of to try to get to the right place. Usually we involve our liquidation consultant at the time, which of course we did. Um, liquidation consultants are usually also the same parties that provide inventory appraisals for your lender. Um, at the time, because it was so unknown what the consumer would do when the world reopened, liquidators weren't willing to give appraisals. So usually when we forecast a sale, we rely at least in part on the appraisal and the expertise of your liquidator. We didn't even have that here. Now, the liquidators were willing to give us their expertise and their intelligence, and they participated in the conversation, and they gave us their best view of what they thought would happen. But none of us knew what was going to happen. So we just did the best we could. We've all worked with each other before, sometimes in an adversarial way, sometimes in a cooperative way. You know, in this case and in others since then, we just rode in the same direction and we just tried to figure it out. And in the Models case, the sales actually very much outperformed projections. Ultimately, by the time we reached plan confirmation, the debtor was current with their projected budget, had made all payments it projected during the case. And now we're post-confirmation uh, representing a liquidation trust, which is likely to pursue some litigation and remaining causes of action. But the store closing sales and the liquidation itself, it went pretty well. We took out the lenders and now it's about creating value for creditors. So what are the warning signs that investors should be looking for in this kind of current environment? So this is a topic I actually enjoy speaking about and I speak about quite a bit with our trade vendor community. If you know what to look for and if you pay attention, you really can start to see some patterns and better prepare yourself for an eventual filing if you're a creditor of a retailer, of a technology company, of a travel company, it's really industry agnostic. A few patterns have been developing over the last few years. One, if you start to see some turnover in executive management, that's obviously a sign that there might be a problem underway at the company. When you see turnover at the executive levels, don't just read the article, say that was interesting and move on. It's helpful to do a Google search on the experience of the new executives. You may find that some of the executives just appointed have been an executive in two, three, or four prior Chapter 11 cases, right? The people that are hired in the months before a bankruptcy case are hired because they have experience shepherding a company through bankruptcy. And the likelihood is they've done it several times before. So if you Google search the people that are now newly involved, you may find something out. In addition, uh, the newest development over the last few years has been the introduction of the quote-unquote independent board member. Now, obviously, that's not a new concept entirely, but in connection with Chapter 11 cases, its prevalence has grown exponentially. 
So an independent board member is brought in in the months before a bankruptcy filing, essentially to sometimes cleanse prior transactions. So sometimes they're brought in, they're given a charge to go review transactions that predated their arrival. Basically a job that would ultimately be done by someone like me as committee counsel after the bankruptcy is filed. Now, why is it being done by an independent board member? Well, usually the independent board member is obviously someone of the company's choosing. It's someone of the company's counsel's choosing, and they're brought in to cleanse the transaction. They're brought in to run in a quote unquote investigation and say they either found something or they didn't find something. Then when the case is filed, debtor's counsel says to the judge, judge, we took it very seriously. We brought in an independent director. They ran an independent investigation. And the transaction, Your Honor, doesn't give rise to a cause of action. Or it gives rise to a cause of action, but we settled it for these small amount of dollars. They're trying to cut off a, a committee from doing its job and from really getting under the hood of these prior transactions. So obviously, I have additional issues with that concept. But to answer your question, warning signs an investor could look for if you see a company bringing on new executives, putting in place an independent director. Right? These are publicly disclosed changes in the hierarchy of a company that should give you a reason to ask questions of your partner at the company. If you're a director of credit and you're dealing with sales, or if you're a director of credit and you're dealing with the credit side of the of business trust company, it should prompt you, it should trigger you to ask questions that can help you better assess the credit worthiness of the customer. So I'm sure, I mean, there's a longer list. We could stay here for days, but to me, those are the ones that stick out the most. And I think you'll see, you know, a lot of executive management turnover now, right? Some companies had awful holiday seasons. A lot of times the easiest thing to do is to blame management. So you'll see a lot of turnover there. People should be investigating that turnover. And, you know, just given these unprecedented times, how are trade creditors positioning themselves? So it's interesting. I spent a lot of time speaking to trade credit groups um, around the country, uh, usually throughout the year. So since March, this is the first year in 20 plus years that I'm not traveling at least once a month, uh, speaking to these groups. And usually we're walking through, you know, your rights under the Uniform Commercial Code, um, how to analyze a balance sheet, all the different ways you can learn to protect yourself as a credit side, uh, you know, manager, CFO, you know, credit function of a trade vendor. During 2020, during COVID, things were happening so fast and things were happening without warning that a lot of what we've trained people to think of, which gives you months to approach and prepare for a possibility, that arsenal of weapons really wasn't that helpful for it, the average individual to deal with something we could have never prepared for. So my advice to these people who I've been speaking to for 20 years was don't forget everything I've taught you over the last 20 years, but as we become more nimble and more savvy, and as you've gained expertise and you believe you have a greater level of expertise than maybe your colleague elsewhere, in a time that is so complicated and crazy, the best thing you could do is take a step back and try to simplify. Bring it back to the absolute 
core basic concepts. The core basic concepts of reviewing your customer's financial wherewithal and the core basic concepts of the uniform commercial code, which has been around for generations as to what you can do in dealing with a customer who you sell product to, right? Under the uniform commercial code, you can set, you could stop goods that are in transit to a company. Under the uniform commercial code, you can send a notice of reclamation, right? These are concepts that have been superseded by sections to the bankruptcy code. They're concepts that are sometimes outdated. They are concepts that are sometimes forgotten. But my advice to my clients and the parties I speak to was to go back to the beginning, go back to what's simple and see if the simple can solve the complicated. And it seemed to work for them. And what about the landlords? How much trouble are they in? So it's extremely tempting when you represent trade vendors, when you represent the lenders, when you represent anybody in the capital structure or creditor body of a distressed company. And it's easy to try to point fingers at someone else and say, let them carry the problem, right? Retail, for example, most stores were completely dark and companies were unable to access their collateral, their, their inventory for months. The easy thing to do would say to the landlords, well, you wouldn't let me into my mall. Why should I pay you rent? Well, the pandemic hit landlords by surprise too, right? Landlords are not the evil empire of the global pandemic. And many landlords have to turn around and pay people they owe, right? They have to pay their mortgage. They have to pay their taxes. They incur common costs, uh, you know, maintaining the common areas. So landlords were in a bind. Landlords still are in a bind. So landlords themselves are incredibly sophisticated. Landlords usually associate with very sophisticated counsel. They have very sophisticated in-house counsel and executives. So they're being creative, right? You look at them in JCPenney, in Brooks Brothers, in True Religion, they become the buyers of their former tenants, right? They couldn't afford to have JCPenney disappear as an anchor tenant in class A malls. Many of those malls, their uh, core uh, tenants on the 50 yard line of their class A malls have provisions in their leases that say if the tenant goes under and goes out, they can exit or modify their lease. They can't have that problem be pervasive throughout their lease portfolio. They'd have malls going under left and right, their best malls. So they did what they had to do. They stepped up and they became part of their solution. I'm sure it wasn't their initial plan to become the owner of many of their former tenants, but they've done it. And they've done it not with an intention of just plugging the gap and putting a bandaid on things. I'm sure they plan on figuring out a way to operate these portfolio companies now in a profitable way. Um, but they had to become part of the solution. Otherwise, they were going to be looking at substantial vacancies that they may never have recovered from. Um, so that problem is not over, but they are extremely bright, extremely sophisticated, and extremely nimble. And while I said, like, it's easy to say, hey, if I wasn't able to access my store, I'm not going to pay you rent. That's not the position I'd like to take. It's not the position uh, the committees I represent generally take. I view the landlords as my constituency as well. 
but they're super smart people figuring out how to adapt in a completely and utterly complicated and challenging problem for them. And for years, we've been hearing about the retail apocalypse. Will the bricks and mortar business model succeed in this environment? So I do. I, I do believe brick and mortar will survive. Um, it'll look completely different over time. I truly believe that. And I think COVID has accelerated much of the consumer base that was hesitant to pivot to online, right? There's a generation, including you know, my parents' generation, who have been very slow to adopt buying everything they possibly buy from Amazon um, and from never stepping foot into a retail location. Now, I still go to retail locations. I go to the retail locations of every company I'm involved in, but many people don't. Many people my age don't. But um, our older generation still likes to go into a physical location, touch the merchandise, try on the merchandise before they buy. I do believe many of those people were forced to adapt. And some of those people will never go back. But there will be, still be a large portion of the population that adapted temporarily and is very anxious to go back. And then there's another part of the population that just likes the contact. I mean, it's like the only word we fear these days, but they really crave the contact, um, both physical and social, it's experiential. And to me, that's the key word. You're gonna have retailers that will become more experiential, right? I represented the creditors committee in the Sir Latab bankruptcy case this year. Sir Latab was a unique housewares company because they offered cooking classes in the back of their stores that were experiential. You got to try the product with a chef that showed you how to prepare food. It developed a following and a loyal consumer base. I think you're gonna see more stores figure out a way to become experiential. You know, one of the only stores I've gone in with any sort of routine nature over the last eight months has been a store where my kids get to go make pottery and clay, right? Because it's experiential. And I think those are the types of companies that will succeed in a brick and mortar format. Now, those brick and mortar will have corresponding e-commerce, right? You, I don't think you'll see a Models that doesn't have an e-commerce that can easily pivot in a time of need. So I think brick and mortar will be paired with e-commerce in a way we've never seen before right, more universally accepted. But I don't see brick and mortar disappearing. Frankly, I hope it doesn't. It's something I've, I've been a, you know, involved in retail since my first job when I was 14 years old. I've been stocking shelves since then. I worked at Model Sporting Goods 25 years ago. I was a manager of one of their sneaker departments well before I ever got involved in their bankruptcy case. So I'm at retail at heart. Uh, my grandparents uh, worked in the garment industry in New York City. So I hope it doesn't go anywhere. I think it's part of the fabric, of certainly here in the Northeast, but certainly I believe the U.S. economy. Uh, but it's going to look different for sure. And I think back to the landlord question, they're going to be the ones that are going to help figure help us figure out what retail looks like going forward, right? What do you do with those anchor spots? Do they become mini distribution centers? Do you uh, repurpose the bottom level of your mall to be medical offices? You know, it's going to look different, but it's not going anywhere. Okay. That's good to hear as a shopaholic myself. Well, that's all the time we have today. Jeff, I want to thank you so much for being here with us. And this was just providing us with such great color on what to expect in 2021. 
Thank you so much and happy and healthy to each of you emphasizing the healthy for sure. Thank you.